Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. I'm your host, Kerry Mulstein, and this is the podcast where we look at elements of the Scriptures that make them become more real for us because we believe there's a great power in the Scriptures, and as they become real, we can apply that power in our lives better, and we sure need that. This is the second of our shortcasts. It's the third episode covering the book of Judges, but it's the second of our shortcasts where we're just going quickly through uh, some of the stories and trying to, to point out some things that make them become very real and also um, help them apply to our lives better. And we are going to cover both the story of Gideon, which we are uh, is part of our Come Follow Me reading for the week, but we will also cover some stories that are not in the Come Follow Me reading. And let me say a, a little bit of why. The book of Judges covers some of Israel's worst times. Uh, in some ways, some of their lowest points. And I know someone who once said that uh, they stopped reading the Old Testament when they got to the book of Judges because they said, how could uh, they believe that God wanted us to act like that? Well, I don't think that the book of Judges is telling us how we should act all the time. Sometimes when we see the people repenting and following God, then yes, that's how we should act. But it also tells us how they did when they were doing quite poorly. Because as I've said a number of times, the Old Testament does not hide that from us. Instead, it shows us, here's what we did wrong, and here's what you should learn from it. And that is on display in the book of Judges probably more than anywhere, at least as much as it is anywhere. And so we're going to look at some of those stories. But let's start with the great story of Gideon in chapter 6. Now, I'm going to tell you uh, there... um, I'm doing this uh, on both, all of my podcasts are on both YouTube and on podcasts like Apple Podcasts and Google and Spotify and whatever else. But um, uh, as a result, I don't do these with a heavy video emphasis because most of my audience is actually just listening. But I do go through this particular story in some depth and some detail with maps and pictures. So I'll try and describe that for you here. But if you want to go into it more in depth with lots of maps and pictures, then you should go to my YouTube channel, The Scriptures Are Real, but look at the playlist that is called Old Testament Videos. So if you go to Old Testament Videos, you can scroll down and find Judges 1, and that video covers the story of Gideon, and Judges 2, that video covers the story of Samson, where you can see the the maps and pictures and all sorts of other things. Uh, If you have a hard time finding it that way, another way you can find this is if you go to outofthedust.org. This is the website that I've made to help with all sorts of things. One of the pages that you can find there on outofthedust.org is an Old Testament AIDS page. So that's Old Testament AIDS. It's designed to help you find um, lots of things that can help you understand the Old Testament. And I'll try to remember to put these in the show notes. Um, If you go to Old Testament AIDS and you keep scrolling down, you'll find all these class videos that I've made. Oh, there's my mom. Uh, Hi, mom. I'm here uh, broadcasting from my mom's house, kind of keeping an eye on her, and she's keeping an eye on me, making sure I don't get in too much trouble. In any case, um, this Old Testament AIDS uh, page, as you scroll down, you'll find my Old Testament class videos, and there are links to the judges' videos there. So you can see these things in more detail there. The story of Gideon is one of my favorite stories, and it's partially because it becomes so clear how much the Lord wants us to understand that we need to rely on him, and if we rely on him, anything can happen, and we don't need to rely on anything else. It's also a great story about God being patient with us as we work our way through things. So um, one of the great things about Gideon is he is not someone that you would expect, oh, this is a great warrior. That's Samson. 
Gideon is not someone where you just said, whoa, he's, he's, uh, uh, of course, he's the guy that would uh, deliver us. Now, we do have uh, an angel coming to Gideon. And uh, so we're in chapter 6, verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him, Gideon, and said, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. So he must, you know, be some kind of valor uh, and so on. But um, Gideon doesn't feel like he's the guy that can deliver Israel. And they're being oppressed by the Midianites. Now, these are actually fellow descendants of Abraham, Abraham uh, through his wife Keturah, the Midianites. And remember that they've had some relations with the Israelites, including that Moses' father-in-law was a Midianite. But anyway, the Midianites are oppressing them right now. And um, we'll talk in a minute about why they might be oppressing them. So um, Gideon is called to deliver Israel by an angel. And uh, Gideon makes an offering to the Lord. It's part of how he knows that this is really an angel and he's really being called. And uh, then he makes a sacrifice to the Lord. And um, then note this, uh, if we go to, we're still in chapter six, and we go to verse 25, after he's built an altar to the Lord, uh, the Lord says to Gideon, take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock. So this is interesting. His first step is not going to be to go to battle but it's going to be to work on getting rid of idolatry and replacing it with worship of Jehovah, right? In some ways, it's a, it's a mirror of President Nelson recently telling us, cut out some of the uh, social media and, and other inputs in your life from the world and replace it with, with input from Christ. Make more time for Christ. Okay, so after he has torn down this altar and so on, uh, he's going to start to... to get rid of idolatry. And that's really the first step. Remember that this cycle that we've talked about is that you have to repent, and then the Lord will send this deliverer. Well, he's, he's chosen a deliverer. Maybe some people have repented or something, and then this deliverer or judge, Gideon, will help people repent so that God will help them more. <coughs> he also then gathers a number of people together. Uh, he's trying to, to do what the Lord has asked. Um, and so he's gathering people together, um, and he, he, so he's following the Lord, but he has some questions. It seems like he wants to know, is, is the Lord still with him, and is he doing things the way the Lord wants him to? So he's going to ask for a sign. So let's come back to that in a moment. Let's first of all look at the sign. We're in chapter 6, and we're going to look at verse 36, where Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said, behold, I will put a fleece of wool in the floor. And if the dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry upon all the earth beside it, then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. Now, uh, we typically talk about, he's, he's looking for a sign here, and we typically talk about signs being a terrible thing. Uh, and you have Christ talking about wicked adulterous generations that seek for a sign, and Joseph Smith saying that if someone asks for a sign, you know they're an adulterer. Uh, the Book of Mormon isn't real big on signs, but I think we have to understand there's a difference between uh, different kinds of signs. The signs that Christ, Joseph Smith, and, and many Book of Mormon writers are talking about or prophets are talking about is someone who says that they, will, they refuse to believe until they see a sign, and that's a problem. But see, Gideon has already shown he believes. He's already um, thrown down an altar of, of false worship and built up God's altar. He's already gathering an army. 
and he's moving and he just wants to know, are you still with me? Am I still doing this the right way? We all often have those questions. And God seems to be pretty patient with Gideon when he asks that kind of a question, when he wants to know, when he's already acted, already shown that he believes, and he just is looking for confirmation. Then he asks for this sign. And as he rises up early the next morning uh, and thrusts the fleece together and wringed out dew of the fleece, a bowl full of water. And so then it seems like, okay, that's what I asked for. It's dry on the ground and the fleece is wet. But then he must have thought, wait a minute, maybe it always works that way. I better double check on this. So he asked for another sign. Uh, God, let this verse 39, let not thine anger be hot against me and I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, this once with the fleece, let it now be dry upon the fleece and the ground be wet. And that's what happened the next day. So he knows God is with him. So I love that God is patient with him as he has these concerns and these questions, he, he is just going to work with him as he wants to know, are you still with me? Am I still doing this the right way? And we will often have to ask that question in our lives. That's just how, uh, how it works. We have to know that we're still doing things the right way because sometimes we start out one way and God then changes that we should do it a different way and so on. And we just have to, to kind of check with God and make sure we're still working the way he wants to. And God is very patient and happy to work with us that way, it would seem. So Gideon gathers uh, a lot of men and God has a concern, a little bit like we saw with Deborah and Barak. He, he doesn't want anyone to think that they're successful because of their own power. He wants them to realize it's his power. So he says, you have too many people. And uh, part of the law of Moses actually said, if someone is gathered in to battle and they're afraid, or if they've just gotten married, but haven't had children, that they should go home. So Gideon does that, and he tells him to go home. And he goes um, from, uh, I'm looking for the numbers, my memory says it's from 30,000 to 10,000. Um, uh, yeah, so 22,000 leave, and 10,000 are left. So go home, and 10,000 are left with Gideon. And God says, that's still too many. You're still going to think that you did this because you're powerful, and I don't want there to be any question. So go to the spring of water. Now, the spring of water is strategically important, and I'll describe that in a minute. But he says, go to this spring of water, and uh, anyone who uh, gets down and drinks uh, like a dog, then he should uh, go home. But the people who like cup their hand and, and put it in their mouth, uh, they should stay with you. Now, I don't know exactly why this is the sign. Some people have seen symbolism of this, and it, and it works for me. I don't know if it's what the intended symbolism was, but that those who are getting down and putting their face in the water are not being watchful, not being worried of uh, what's going on, while those who uh, cup it with their hand but are still looking around are, are watchful and, and still ready for battle. Maybe that's what the symbolism is. I don't know, but I like that symbolism. Uh, in any case, the, the greatest purpose of this is that it, it whittles them down to 300 men. They only have 300 men left. So let's talk about why they're at this particular spring and some of what's going on with this battle. And this is part of what makes things real to me. And again, you can see pictures of this on that uh, other um, playlist on my YouTube channel. But uh, you may remember when I talked about the story of Deborah and Barak that I talked about the Jezreel Valley. The, uh, the land of Canaan or the promised land or the land of Israel is a route that allows you to get from Africa, most notably the Egyptians, but from Africa up into uh, Asia, so Mesopotamia, uh, India, these places, or over to Europe where the, the uh, Hittites are uh, and up into Turkey, that's where the Hittites are and up into that area. Uh, so that's all traveling north and south, but sooner or later somewhere 
the, uh, most of the trade routes go north and south, but somewhere you're going to have to cross east to west. And really, the only place to do that is in this large Jezreel Valley. So the Jezreel Valley controls the routes between three continents. That's how you'll go east to west. And there's one way in and out of the Jezreel Valley, I mean, one reasonably sized way uh, on the west side and one on the east side. So if you can control those passes on the west or the east side, then you control the military and the trade routes for three continents. And that's probably what the Midianites are there fighting over. The Israelites have started to control that Jezreel Valley. So they're controlling the way in and out and the trade routes and the military routes and the Midianites want to fight them. So at the narrow pass on the eastern side, you have Gideon on the south mountain that overlooks the pass. And you have the Midianites on the North Mountain. And this spring of water is at the foot of the, the South Mountain. Um, and the Midianites are on the North Mountain. And they're going to fight in that little narrow space in between because whoever ends up winning that battle and controls that little space controls these trade routes. That's much of what this is about, I'm sure. It doesn't ever say that, but it's such a strategic site. I'm sure that's what it's about and part of what is going on with the Midianites being unhappy with the Israelites there. So we have um, the Gideon, he's gotten down to 300 men. Clearly, if they win with 300 men, they win the battle. So I love the way it happens. It is absolutely a miracle, and yet it's a miracle that makes sense in a really interesting way. And this is where things become very real for me as well. So the, a lot of places in this, it becomes real for me. Uh, Gideon, he hears a dream. He, uh, he knows that the Midianites are, or even some of the Midianites are inspired that, that God is with the Israelites and they're going to win. So he divides his 300 men into three companies, 100 in each company. And every man gets a trumpet and a, an empty picture. These are clay pitchers that, that uh, can make a lot of noise when they break. And there's lamps with the pictures. And, and he says, okay, we're going to go down and we're going to surround these guys. And when I blow the trumpet, then I want everyone to blow the trumpet. And they're all going to blow the trumpet and they're going to break the pitchers that are in their hands. Um, now, that's interesting because typically you're only going to have for a, a company, say like a company of 100 or of 1,000, you're going to have one guy with the, the horn or the trumpet. Uh, these are, are shofars, undoubtedly, ram's horns, maybe some uh, other kinds of animals' horns, but mostly ram's horns. You're only going to have one guy and he'll have a light and, and so on. So what happens is that when you get everyone, all these Israelites, but only 300 of them surrounding the Midianites, and then they have the lights and they blow the trumpets and they make this noise, it will seem like there are tens of thousands of Israelites surrounding the Midianites. So the Midianites will jump up and start to battle. The problem is there really are hardly any Israelites for them to battle. So who do they end up fighting? Each other. And they kill each other off. And the Israelites win this battle because the Midianites all kill each other because of this confusion in the night. Um, and that's the miracle that God brings about by the directions that he gives to Gideon. And it's a, it's a fantastic miracle. And there's no doubt that the, Is or that the Israelites have won, but they've won because God is with them. They can't think that it's because of their own might. And that's exactly what God wants. He's humbling them and then bringing them back to him, recognizing that he is the one that delivers them, as Moses so often in Deuteronomy asked them to do. So that's the story of Gideon. Now, there are some stories that um, 
the, the Come Follow Me reading doesn't have us do, but I think are worth mentioning because sometimes people hear about these stories and they want to know what's going on and, uh, and understand it. Um, we're not going to do all of the stories, but we're going to at least do the story of Jephthah. Jephthah um, is, again, not the person who you would expect to be a leader or a judge in Israel. He's actually the son of a harlot. Um, and uh, he's got a lot of brothers who are big and powerful, but he's, um, he's the, kind of the black sheep of the family, right? Because he's the son of a harlot. Um, but he is chosen to be a leader uh, for Israel and to help them uh, escape, uh, well, overcome bondage, to, to conquer and, and be uh, not so oppressed by the Ammonites, the children of Ammon um, and, and Moabites and so on. So uh, these are, again, some uh, people that uh, are related to the Israelites. In any case, Jephthah, and I'll just tell this story quickly, he makes a vow to God. Um, let's, let's go to uh, verse 30. We're in, what, chapter 11, verse 30. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, they most likely had uh, on bottom floors of their houses goats and sheep and other things like that, and that's kind of what he's expecting. It seems like a fairly foolish thing to bow to me, but in any case, Jephthah is successful, and then the first thing that comes out of his house is his daughter. And he says, oh, no, what am I going to do? And the story gets a little confusing here because he tells the start of the story and she says, OK, well, let's let's uh, we're going to do what you've said. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down in the mountains and be well my virginity. I and my fellows. And uh, and he did that. And uh, then he fulfills his vow. So the question is, did he actually sacrifice her? Or did he sacrifice her the way you say, okay, well, here's a, a person, uh, the way I sacrifice her is I give her up to the Lord, uh, a kind of a Nazarite vow. And that's why she's bewailing her virginity is because she's going to be celibate and serve in the temple or serve in some way and not have a regular family life. And in the end, I can't tell which this is. I have to say, I hope it's not the human sacrifice because that's not a good thing. And I don't think God would honor that. Uh, I mean, he's helped Israel be delivered. And then Jephthah does this afterwards. I don't think God would be pleased with that at all, uh, but perhaps it's this other thing where she is just given as a, a dedicated servant to the Lord, much like we'll see happens with um, Samson is supposed to do this, and um, Samuel after him. Of course, they can get married and have children. Why she wouldn't be able to, I don't know, but um, it might be different for women. In the end, I, we really don't know. There's more that we don't know about this story than there is that we do know, and that's the thing that we have to keep in mind, that there are so many cultural things going on here. There's so many bits of information that are not conveyed that they kind of assume we would know and figure out, but we can't know and we can't figure out. Uh, and so we just have to recognize that there are a lot of things we don't know about these stories. In any case, what we do know is that each time the uh, Lord raises up a deliverer and uh, Israel repents and follows that deliverer, that they are saved from their oppression 
And it, it works well for them when they remember that it's God who does the delivering, and it doesn't work well for them when they forget that. Those are some lessons that we should be able to apply to our own lives. So that's the, the short cast for these stories. Next, we're going to do touch lightly on the Samson story. I've already talked about that quite a bit with Jeff Chadwick. Um, so we'll, we'll touch lightly on the Samson story, and then we're going to touch on some other really uh, tough, but it's tough stories, but that are important for us to learn from and also to know so that we can understand some of the events that happen in the future. 